Credit Card, brought to you by Bank of Ireland in partnership with Aer Lingus. Whether you're buying your weekly basics or splurging on a special gift, with Air Credit Card, you'll collect Avios and unlock even more rewards. The only credit card in Ireland that gives you travel rewards as you spend. Sign up now by searching Bank of Ireland Air Credit Card and go from tap to takeoff. Bank of Ireland, begin. Over 18s only. Acceptance criteria, lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. Subject to a monthly fee of €7.99 and annual government stamp duty of €30. Euro. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Project Green with Bobby Kerr. With thanks to ESB Networks. Connecting you to a clean electric future. ESBnetworks.ie This is Project Green with Bobby Kerr. Over six episodes, we'll be exploring sustainability within businesses and discussing the steps industries are taking to reduce their carbon footprint. This week, it's all about energy. We'll be speaking to the likes of John Mullins of Amaranko, Noel Kniff of Wind Energy Ireland, and Siobhan McHugh of Demand Response Association Ireland in a moment. But first, Ellen Diskin is the Programme Manager of the National Network Local Connections Programme with the ESB, and she joins me now to talk about some of the challenges in front of us. Ellen, first of all, can you give us some context? How important is it to get our energy use sustainable going forward? Every single one of us in our homes, our farms, our businesses in Ireland, we're all electricity users. And over the next 10 years, we're going to be using a lot more electricity and we're going to be using it really, really differently. So why sustainability is so critical in our sector is that every single one of us can play a role in climate action and the solutions are known. You see, we're decarbonising electricity generation as well at the same time. We've already got a lot of wind generation. Over the next number of years, we're going to be connecting a lot more solar generation and a lot more storage. And what's really different about those technologies isn't just that they're renewable, they're also far more local to us. So in ESB Networks and the National Network Local Connections Programme, our job now is to build the systems that allow us bring those two things together give customers sight of when the energy on their local network is greener and cheaper so they can choose to use or store electricity at times when they can play an active role themselves in climate action. Okay. How much of our electricity, our energy use at the moment, is renewable right now? So right now, on average, roughly 40% of the electricity on the network comes from wind generation, so renewables. Some of the time, though, that's up to 75%. So if you just had sighted that, then there are certain times when you could be running the dishwasher or charging your car on 70% or 75% renewable electricity. And over the coming 10 years, we're going to be increasing that really steadily up to 80% as per the National Development Plan. So there's a very high level of renewable electricity on system today. And that's happened because over the last three decades, we've really focused on on changing the fuel or the supply of electricity into the network that reaches every home, farm and business. So over the last three decades, we've come from 0% renewable electricity to roughly 40% today. Over the last 10 years or so, roughly every five years, we have doubled the amount of wind generation on the electricity system. So now we're number one in the world in Ireland for onshore wind generation. If we talk about um, technology and the evolution of technology, Ellen, is, is storing of electricity the big challenge? In other words, you know, if we could have it all generated on the windy days and we were able to store that for use another day, if we cracked that... Would that bring us much, much further on? 
It's certainly a big part of it. So for the last number of decades, our focus has been on the supply of renewable electricity into the network. Now it has to be about getting smarter about when and where and how we use and store electricity. A couple of weeks back, I was asked about storage at a domestic scale. So really getting local with storing and using the same way we're now getting local with generation. And what I responded was that there are over 40,000 battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids on the electricity network today. So over 40,000 homes and businesses where there is a small-scale battery there. But what needs to change now is all of us getting smarter about using and storing that electricity when and where it's available. So right now, how many of those 40,000 drivers or homeowners or businesses are actually using and charging when they can see that there's 75% renewable energy on the system? I doubt very many because right now it's not easy enough. But in our programme, what we're doing is putting the systems in place that make it possible for the for the consumer to see when is a good time, when it's cheaper and greener on the electricity network closer to them so they can start making those smarter decisions about when to use or store, like you're saying there. Okay, so that would be giving the individual user knowledge in their home that if you... If you take this electricity at this time, it'll be very sustainable or it's from wind or it's it'll show you the source. Is that right? That's exactly it. So think Google Maps only energy. So today, how I worked out the route to get here that was going to dodge the traffic is I looked at Google Maps and it gave me the route by monitoring and sending me that information. So that's what we want to do in ESB networks, in national network local connections. If we can put in place the systems that monitor the electricity usage and generation at a local level and send it out, we want to work then with other organisations across our sector so they can develop the right packages for customers and start installing the right smarter technologies in homes and businesses. If if we focus domestically, Alan, the electric uh, the electrification of heat and transport, they're probably the main drivers from a consumer perspective, are they? They're certainly the big thing that's happening over the next number of years. So the electrification of heat and transport of Ireland's emissions third come from agriculture, 20% comes from electricity generation and 40% comes from heating and transport. So making those changes in our homes and our businesses, going to electric heating, electric transport, means we get to take our renewable electricity and use that to drive down the carbon in our heating and our transport. You're talking about spending €4 billion, Alan, uh, between now and 2025. Like, I'm just trying to imagine the you know, where that brings us. Will we see like a charging point at every car parking space right across the country? Will there be charging points outside every home in every in every town, in every country? Just just kind of set the scene for me in terms of what we can expect. Okay, so first of all, in ESB Networks, what we do is the infrastructure that brings electricity to those charge points as opposed to installing the charge points ourselves. So what we'll see over the next number of years is that we're investing in green, local and smart. So green, we're going to be doubling the amount of electricity, renewable generation, so wind and solar on the network. So doubling the amount that's been connected over the last three decades in the coming decade. But then when I say local and smart, by local, what I mean is, as you alluded to there, so over the next 10 years, we're going to get to a point where one home in two has an electric vehicle, one home in four is electrically heated, and hundreds of thousands of homes 
and businesses have microgeneration on their roofs. So when I say getting local, we're starting to increase our rate of investment in the most local networks to make sure that they're really ready to support that one home and two with an electric car, one and four with electric heating and hundreds of thousands with microgeneration. But getting smart is also a big part of what we need to do and what we need to see. So we're really shifting our investment from just investment in the wires to investment in the wires and smarter technologies with programmes like the National Smart Metering Programme and the National Network Local Connections Programme. Okay. Now, we've seen huge uh, increases across all the providers recently, Alan, in terms of energy. Um, Surely energy costs aren't sustainable for the average person if prices keep going up as they are. And where, what role does sustainability have in keeping things affordable? Surely that has to be a key. It's really important and energy costs at the moment are sending a very strong signal that we need to start investing now in a long-term sustainable strategy. What's different about Ireland's climate action strategy isn't that it's the only strategy to get to net zero, it's that it's actually the most cost-effective route because it uses infrastructure we've already got, so an electricity network that reaches every single home, farm, business and community in Ireland. It uses resources that we have in abundance like wind and solar and storage and it also uses human capital that we're really strong at in Ireland like creativity and innovation. But if we want to do this quickly and also really cost effectively, affordably, then we need to start getting smarter about how we use what we've got. We've done a lot of work on what investment and activity is needed over the coming decades to get to net zero. And what we've discovered is, say, if you take the example of the network infrastructure, though we will need to invest in making sure the network is upgraded and just maintains what it needs to do to support the demands of heating and of transport, we've discovered that the cost per unit of electricity that goes through that infrastructure will remain flat or even go down because effectively we're more efficiently using infrastructure that we've already got. The other thing, though, that we've discovered is if we can get smarter about using our local networks when there's an abundance of renewable electricity and when the network is available, then we can reduce the cost that we need to invest in making sure the network's able to support it by 20% or more. So it is so important to affordability and to just doing this right that we get smarter about using what we've got. And on that, Bobby, I suppose if there's one thing that I could ask you and your listeners to do coming off this today... If you're one of the half a million homes and businesses now who have smart meters, go to your electricity supplier. They can give you your data and many of them can give you really nice analysis of how you're using electricity and how some small changes could help you bring down your carbon footprint and also bring down your costs. Uh, Finally then, Alan, what about uh, weaning ourselves off uh, fossil fuels? I suppose both corporately and domestically, like we're seeing new homes now being built Without fireplaces, we're hearing uh, that only killing timber will be allowed to be burned in homes. And also we saw some challenges, I think, to the grid recently because uh, a number of of coal burning stations were inactive. So how do we, I suppose, wean ourselves off uh, the current scenario to become more sustainable and to to, to just to, to be greener around energy? Okay, so Bobby, we've been doing actually a lot of research into what motivates all of us in our businesses, farms and homes, and also what the barriers are to becoming greener and more sustainable. And what we're seeing are the big needs. So first of all, every single one of us wants to leave something better behind. Everybody wants to get greener, get more sustainable. But the barriers that people are talking about, firstly, information and awareness. 
Secondly, ease, making it easier. And then thirdly, affordability. Now, affordability we touched on there. It is so, so important that broad measures are in place. So you mentioned there every new home built today, they're near zero energy because of building regulations introduced in 2019. So building regulations are part of a bigger picture to support us as a society. In terms of information and awareness, so having consistent messages, like the consistent message provided, say, in the budget, that there's going to be supports on funding because this is our national strategy. We want to diversify our sources of generation into solar and storage as well as wind generation. And we also need to focus on the demand side in retrofitting homes, having the right technologies in our homes. And then when it comes to ease, so this one's an interesting one. What we're discovering is that while a lot of people really want to go for the retrofit, have a warmer, more comfortable home, when it comes to smart energy management systems, They're not sure until they find out that, yes, their installer is able to install this, is able to set it up for them, is able to make it more comfortable and easy for them. So it's really important that we supply that we focus on skills right up and down the supply chain. It is so important that we've got tradespeople who are able to sell the right technologies, install them and set them up. Because it comes back to what I opened with. We are all going to be using more electricity. We're going to be using it in really different ways. And if we can get smarter about how we're using it, then we can get so much more out of what we've got. And all of us can play an active role in climate action. All right. Well, Alan Diskin, Programme Manager of the National Network Local Connections Programme with the SB. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Bobby. Now I'm delighted to be joined by John Mullins. He's the Executive Chairman of Amaranko. John, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you. John, can you just talk to us about the the challenges that we have as a society to get carbon neutral? Well, I suppose, look, we've had a, we've, we've had a history in, in this country of being completely reliant on, on fossil fuels, uh, primarily for uh, generation of electricity, uh, um, you know, dating, I suppose, back to the onset of money point and, and gas power generation, oil power generation, um, I mean, over the last 20 years, we've made significant progress with respect to onshore wind. Uh, there are promises of offshore wind and, of course, solar, which is the space I'm in. Um, but that transition is not going to happen overnight. And uh, we have a, a long way to go to, to meet the, uh, the objective of getting to 70% um, electricity by um, uh, renewables by 2030. Um, and in that transition, we need to be extremely careful uh, that we don't put uh, energy security at risk, that it is done in a, in a normal, managed uh, um, process, and that we don't um, you know, transition too quickly from one to the other, so, uh, because that would have a, a very large economic impact uh, on the country if we had brownouts and blackouts. There are a few things we could be doing, though, John, aren't they? Like, uh, if you talk about connecting all the country to the national gas link, should that be a priority? Well, I think, uh, you know, previously I was the chief executive of Borgash, as you're aware, Bobby, and, and, you know, there's a kind of a law of diminishing returns with respect to extending uh, pipelines to areas where you just don't have the the population. A kilometre of gas pipeline is uh, as expensive as a kilometre of motorway. Um, So, you know, we don't have motorways going to every small town and village in the country. So the reality is that, you know, gas is is a solution for about... 700,000 households in the country, and it's probably going to stay at that. Um, it's what we do with the other households, uh, and majority of them are on oil and LPG, um, uh, and they will need over time to be electrified, which is going to put more pressure uh, on the grid, 
And on top of that, we're moving, well, the policy is hopefully moving to a million electric vehicles by 2030, and that's going to put more pressure on the electricity grid. And that means that we have to have the right balance of um, electric, uh, you know, fossil fuel generation and renewable generation as we go forward to meet that demand. And, of course, uh, the other uh, item in the room is uh, data centers and what data centers are, are doing in incrementally effectively to the demand of the country. Yeah, and, and how, big it, how big a part, John, can your sector, solar energy, play? What percentage of the overall sustainable electricity output do you see coming from solar? Well, I mean, we, we, we plan to, over between now and 2030, to put about 2,000 megawatts of solar. But the issue, of course, is our load factor is, is low, that we we're, we're really only at peak load about 11% of the time. So, um, by contrast, wind is about 35-36% of the time. Now, the, the technologies still are around the same price, in, according to the last auction, in terms of, of uh, the cost per kilowatt hour. Um, but when it comes to it, um, you know, we will probably provide no more than 5 or 6% of the overall uh, national grid loading, uh, which is expected to reach uh, uh, you know, 41 terawatt hours. Um, by, uh, by, by 2030. So, you know, we, we could be seeing growth rates in the next 10 years, and this is the high demand scenario from AirGrid, of about 43% in electricity uh, demand. Uh, again, because of all of the reasons I've highlighted earlier, which is intensification of electrification and more data centers getting onto the grid. So there's no one silver bullet going to, uh, to fight uh, this challenge. We need all of the silver bullets. And of course, offshore wind is a, is a big player that will come through from the middle of this decade. And John, do you see a day in our lifetime where we'll see electric charge points at every car park space in the country? Well, if we live long enough, I think we'll see it. Um, I think uh, certainly it's going to be a transition over the next 20 years or so. Um, my sense is that we will see a lot more of it. I think you'll see a lot more companies <clears throat> competing with ESP, e-cars, uh, and others out there uh, to actually provide uh, that infrastructure. But that infrastructure is not cheap, Bobby, and there needs to be some means by which you can get a return on your investment, no different to you know, building office blocks or building property or building pipelines. You need to, you know, an investor will need to know yeah. that they're going to have a return on their investment. Currently, you'd be very brave to go out there and actually put in that level of infrastructure with the level of EV sales at the moment. But certainly, um, if you look at diesel prices at the moment, 161 a litre, Bobby, in around the Dublin area, um, you know, that's certainly motivation for people to start looking at EVs more seriously. Yeah, and when you mentioned cost there, John, you know, and we've seen massive increases in the price of energy recently, like surely for everybody to buy in, it has to be cost effective. Yeah, I mean, this is the balance. And, and this is why I, I think, you know, we have we failed to put signals out there on the electricity side to have more ga gas-powered electricity. You know, we have no new generation unit of that ilk, which is less than 10 years old. The average age is probably well into the 20s. And the availability of that plant basically is now declining. And as a result, this is what's creating this sort of uh, squeeze that we have at the moment where we could have um, quite significant amount of what's called amber alerts, uh, and that is where if you lose one more unit, one more unit on the grid, you're going to have uh, a blackout. So 
you know, the signals really have not been sent to have the appropriate balance between um, gas and, and uh, gas power generation and, and renewables. Uh, and the other issue that's out there, by the way, which I completely disagree with the government policy on, which is the fact that we should have liquefied natural gas terminals. Now, you can make sure that they're well gas only by, by, by planning or by law, but we definitely need, in the context of Britain being outside of the European Union and us being completely dependent on gas through Britain, uh, from a point of view of national security, we should quite definitely be investing in LNG at this stage. Well, look, John, it's, uh, it's great to get your wisdom on this. You've been in the energy sector a long time. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Bobby. Project Green, Project Green. with Bobby Kerr. With thanks to ESB Networks, connecting you to a clean electric future. ESPnetworks.ie Now, as we continue to examine how the energy industry can be sustainable and potentially carbon neutral, going into the future, I'm joined by three people who can give us particular insight into what's coming down the line. Um, my guests are Noel Kniff, he's the CEO of Wind Energy Ireland, Siobhan McHugh is the CEO of Demand Response Association Ireland, and Paddy Finn is the CEO of Viatas. Um, Noel, I might start with you, if I may. Um, who do you represent and what's your purpose? In Wind Energy Ireland, we're Ireland's largest representative body for the onshore and offshore wind industry. And we also happen to be Ireland's largest renewable organisation. So we have over 150 members who come together to work to develop, build, operate and support the development of onshore and offshore wind energy in the island of Ireland. Okay. Well, that's a good, and um, we'll come back to you in a second. I just want to get everybody's credentials out on the table first. Siobhan McHugh, the CEO of Demand Response Associa- Association Ireland. Um, what is your organisation and what is your purpose? So the Demand Response Association of Ireland is a trade association. We represent companies who participate in the capacity, system services and energy markets on the island of Ireland. So at the moment, we represent approximately 600 megawatts of demand and embedded generation um, across hundreds of industrial and customer commercial sites around Ireland and Northern Ireland. So these sites are managed by our members who trade portfolios of flexible demand in the energy markets. Okay, so your members actually sell energy as well as consume energy. So what they do, Bobby, is they offer a service into into these electricity markets. They aggregate demand response and flexibility across hundreds of customer sites. So that could be curtailing or shifting usage, um, managing quantities of usage. And they trade that as an aggregated portfolio. So a larger group of all of these distributed sites into the energy market. And that provides a tool then to network operators in balancing the system in real time. Okay, I'm not sure I fully get it, but maybe give me a practical example. I will indeed. So Bobby, if you or I at home, you know, we think of our energy usage as uh, we plug something in or or flick a switch and and we use what's there. And the same on larger industrial sites to a larger scale. But actually, if you think about it, energy is generated at the same time that it's supplied. So it's a really fine balance needs to be maintained across the electricity network at all times. So what industrial and commercial customers participate in demand response can do is identify particular processes and uses of energy on their site that they're willing to either postpone, to use at a different time, to change the quantity, or maybe do some self-generation or on-site generation themselves. So that's a really powerful tool in in managing the power system. So ultimately, um, ultimately, what you're doing is you're taking pressure off the demands by, by, by the way the, you use electricity, your association or your members. 
That's it, exactly. Because okay. that timing of use of electricity is so critical on the power system. This provides a way of shifting it, being signaled to shift it or move your usage. And that provides that flexibility okay. that the power system needs. All right, stand by, Siobhan. We'll be back to you in a second. I want to bring in our third guest now, uh, Paddy Finn. He's the CEO of Viatas. Paddy, you're very welcome to the programme. Hi, Bobby. Thanks very much. Uh, now, tell us about you and your organisation, firstly. Um, so, Viatas is a smart grid technology and, and service provider. Um, we're based out of Limerick, and uh, in Ireland, we operate a, d- a demand response portfolio like Siobhan was talking about here. So, in essence, if, uh, if you look at the electricity system, it's the most perfect just-in-time delivery system you can have. So at the exact instance where somebody starts using more power on somewhere in the grid, generally a power station starts generating more power. Okay. So if people come home in the evening, like you and I, and we start cooking and we start using more electricity, typically what happens is an equivalent amount of uh, generation is is produced by power stations in the system. And we pay our electricity bill and that money goes to the power station. Well, an alternative approach is that when we come home and start cooking and using more power, well, we in Viotas could turn off the refrigerators in the local supermarket by the exact same amount. So now they've the supermarket's reduced its power so that you can use it. So instead of you paying the power station for reducing power, you now pay the supermarket for having reduced the power that they used. And the grid stays in balance without you having to actually increase the amount of generation on the grid. And uh, how do you do that practically? That so, sounds like it sounds yes. like a really wonderful idea. But tell so, me about how it works practically. So, so we rather than really refriger- uh, refrigerators and supermarkets, we do this in a large scale with uh, with large plants like biomedical and pharmaceutical plants um, with the processes that will be there, manufacturing plants, then heavy industries such as uh, cement production and also an increasing number of data centers as well then to offer fle- this flexibility. So we developed the techno- technology behind this. Uh, we install it on the client on the client sites that uh, allows us to automate this process, and we will have agreed with the clients. We will know exactly uh, what we can do that won't have um, severe critical impacts on on their on their process and on their sites. So, what's actually what what's available for us to use at yeah. any point in time? We monitor that every second from our portfolio of clients around the country, and then we aggregate that and we effectively trade it like a power station into the electricity market. So as far as the electricity market's concerned, we look like a power station. But when the electricity market asks us to generate power, we don't. We reduce the power that our clients are consuming. And if you look at the scale that this can grow to, uh, most people don't even know that this exists on on the island of Ireland. Whereas our company alone has 185 megawatts of this uh, this type of power. To put that in context, um, West Offaly Power, which was the largest... Uh, peat burning power plant in Ireland was 155 megawatts. Oh, so it's bigger than a power station. Bigger than a power station. Right, that's really fascinating. We'll come back to it in more detail in a minute, Paddy. Let me go back to Noel Kniff, uh, the CEO of Wind Energy Ireland. Uh, Noel, can you tell us where we're at now on on and offshore wind? Just uh, Let's uh, just look at this, the current status of what we have and maybe what we intend building. Yeah, sure, no problem. So um, back in 2008, the government set a target for Ireland to try and meet 40% of our electricity demand from renewable generation by 2020. So that was the goal that we have been working on for the last 12 years to try and deliver. Uh, The government primarily did that by encouraging onshore wind development. So 40% of our electricity last year actually came from 
onshore wind sources and renewable sources. So we actually achieved our target. We're one of the few sectors in the climate uh, arena that managed to do that. And if you could think about it, last year, the, the year of the pandemic, when we were all so reliant on our electricity demand for, for our Teams meetings, for our Zoom meetings, for our Netflix binges, four times out of 10, that was powered by wind energy. So it's pretty incredible <clears throat> when you look at it like that. On the uh, on offshore wind side, we have developed one offshore wind farm in Ireland. It's off the coast of uh, Arklow Bay in, in County Wicklow. Yeah. Great, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it, it's a, a, one of the, at the time it was built in 2004, it was actually one of the largest offshore wind farms in the world, would you believe? But it's only 25 megawatts, to put that in the scale that Paddy just described, uh, in the power stations that, that they control and, and the power generation that they have available. Uh, and over the next 10 years now, our goal is to try and dramatically expand that amount of on- offshore wind generation. Tell me about the difference in cost between offshore and onshore. And, and again, just as a layman, I'd suggest, you know, that the the engineering, the mm. dealing with deep water, all that sort of stuff. Uh, is it is it double? Is it treble the cost? Uh, of an onshore wind farm? If we were having this conversation 10 years ago, I probably would have given you a figure in that ballpark. But where we're actually at at the moment is that uh, it, onshore wind energy is probably the cheapest form of electricity generation in Ireland right now. Uh, and offshore wind energy, while we haven't developed any in Ireland, we can look to our neighbours in the UK where they've dramatically increased the amount of offshore wind energy they're producing. And costs there have reduced uh, hugely in the, la- in the last 10 years. We've seen costs fall by about three times. So in the last uh, renewable auction in the UK, which is how offshore wind energy gets procured, uh, prices were coming in in the region of about £40 per megawatt hour. So that, that's exceptionally cheap when you look at the price of gas generation today in the region of maybe €150. Euro. We'll come back to price in a minute because mm. that's one of the issues I want to talk about. Uh, Siobhan, just maybe uh, on that vein around price, you know, in order for to get buy-in from society around, you know, embracing uh, sustainable power, is price not a factor? Like, do we not have to? Do we do we need to make it affordable for people to change behaviour? We do, I suppose, Bobby. What's really important is that the the consumer has a, has a lot of choice and has knowledge about the power that they're using, whether it be you and I in our home or or a business customer. Um, I think that you know some of the f- figures that Noel has quoted there show that sustainable power and decarbonizing power doesn't necessarily mean more expense. You know, you invest for the future and you reap those benefits in the future. So I suppose the key things would be that the consumer has access to that information, be it you know the business owner or, or the or the householder, but also that the policies and the and the and the structures and the market is in place there to allow those things to happen because they will reap benefits in future. Decarbonized power is going to save us ultimately on um, on our emissions targets and on using less carbon and, and emitting less carbon in the system. And the way that the carbon prices are going, that is only going to benefit us if the more that we can you know, harness and utilize that energy. So I think it's really important that the costs and the and um, you know the, the benefits are truly reflected in there and the consumer can understand it. So from a consumer's point of view, what can they do? They can try to be more efficient. So you know the, the power that you don't use is always the most efficient, um, the most efficient means of, of saving. And after that it's trying to you know to purchase better, to look at your timing of your um of when you use electricity, look at how you're supplied. And then I suppose finally to look at those opportunities like Paddy has described about, you know, can you generate revenue? Can you make yourself and your business resilient? Yeah. Um, and can you actually offer a service that, that you'll be paid for in the end? Okay. 
Paddy, can I come back to you? Um, two of the big, I suppose, issues around uh, this move to sustainability. Tell me about storing electricity. Is is that is that possible? Is it impossible? Now, do we have like giant batteries out there somewhere that? Because because surely that's if you're trying to deal with supply and demand. If one was able to store electricity, and again, I'm asking you this as a layman, um, what where is technology in relation to providing, I suppose, uh, storage of electricity on a grand scale? Is that are we getting any closer to that? Absolutely. So we we well we are seeing the emergence of storage. Um, uh, a lot of battery energy storage systems have come on um, online on, in other electricity markets, and we've also seen quite a few come on online in here in Ireland. Um, these systems are generally used to tackle very short-term issues on the syst- on the power system that might last in the range of of seconds to minutes, okay. uh, rather than rather than hours, and that would be a lot down to the uh, the build costs of the assets, and um, and also just the challenge associated with storing these vast amounts of energy. Um, but when we really want to get longer term storage, you start looking at at other technologies, and we're going to see the we're going to see the emergence of of hydrogen on the system as being a, a key storage uh, technology over the uh, that will emerge over the next decade. Right now, this is Project Green. My guests are Noel Kniff, the CEO of Wind Energy Ireland; Siobhan McHugh, the CEO of Demand Response Association Ireland; and Paddy Finn, CEO of Viatas. Um, Noel, just uh, again, I, I, I think wind is fascinating. and But you seem to have a lot of, like I suppose any new technology, people don't want a wind farm or a windmill in their back garden. So, you know, people are, are willing to embrace it as long as it doesn't impact them. Just speaking personally, uh, I, I, I have no issue with offshore power or offshore wind farms. I actually think... And I don't even have any issue with if I drive down uh, the N7 and I see that wind farm on a motorway. I, I probably do have a difficulty with it in areas of natural beauty. Mm-hmm. What are your challenges there in terms of getting the infrastructure in a place that's acceptable to people? Uh, yeah, so it, it, there's there's a number of things that developers do when they're looking at sites that are suitable for the development of both onshore and offshore wind energy. <clears throat> there's an enormous amount of community engagement that would take place. Uh, you'd look at characteristics of the site when you're trying to choose it. So is there a good place to connect onto the electricity grid nearby? What what are the wind speeds in the area? If you're offshore, you'll take into account what the seabed might be, your wave heights. Um, but one of the biggest things that people take into account is the uh, discussions and the uh, opinions of the local community. So there's a lot of examples today where developers would initially go out to a com- community, have conversations both in things like town halls or clinics and one-to-ones with people, and then re-optimise their development site in advance of going into planning. And what we've seen actually nationally, we we carry out uh, opinion polls of um people around Ireland every single year and over the last five or six years there's been a huge positivity towards both onshore and offshore wind energy and you might have seen uh, two weeks ago the Irish Times carried out a series of polls on climate change measures that we're trying to implement in Ireland and wind energy actually came out as the one of the only measures that people were generally very supportive of. But speaking of. practically if you go and have town hall meetings and you embrace the community which is again uh, very laudable straight away that says to me it's going to 
halt your development. It's going to slow things down. The consultation costs time. It costs money. Um, but can you can you see beyond that? You can. In these seven new wind farms that you're proposing building now. Yes, well, I, I'd say what, you're, what you might be referring to there is that in order to hit our 2030 targets for offshore wind energy, we'd need to uh, deliver between seven and 10 offshore wind farms. Um, and then for onshore wind energies, just to, to maybe set the scene, uh, we're hoping to double the amount of onshore wind energy that we have on our grid between now and 2030 as but well. But does it not make more sense to be offshore where that's where the wind is? Uh, and again, I'm speaking to you here as, sure. a, as a layman, but that would be... That would be my thinking on Yeah, so, so uh, it <clears throat> makes sense to do both for a number of different reasons. So if you were developing a wind farm in Ireland maybe 20, 30 <clears throat> years ago, you would have been looking at the site with the best possible wind speeds, the best possible wind generation. And that's why a lot of our, our wind farms are located in mountainous areas, um, predominantly on the west of the country. Um, but with advances in turbine technology, um, now wind speed in Ireland in particular is is somewhat irrelevant because we actually have tremendous wind speeds anywhere in the country. So your design of a wind farm has changed. You're no longer so focused on wind speeds. You're focused on how can I connect onto the grid and how can I design my wind farm so that it, it's suitable for the community. Um, there, there, on your point on engagement with communities, it's absolutely vital that we do this. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just about developing wind energy. I think this goes to the entire climate change challenge. We have to bring people along with us. Yeah. Uh, it, we as a country and our government has accepted that we need to do more to try and combat climate change. Uh, and actually onshore wind energy or offshore wind energy or solar wind energy, that's one of the more simpler choices that we're going to have to make in our lives to try and move to a zero carbon lifestyle. We're going to have to make much more difficult choices and I think it makes, uh, and this and, it, and it's one that it's actually good for your pocket because okay. it'll bring down your bills too. Siobhan, can I ask you about uh, interconnection to the UK and the French grid? So the grid, explain maybe how the grid works for us. Um, and how we're connected to the European grid uh, and, and how can that improve? I will indeed, Bobby, try and maybe distill it down into a nutshell. It's a very, it's a very complex thing. Um, you know, I'm all about it's... simplicity on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you think of Ireland, we are an island, an island um, power system, basically. So that means that, you know, largely all of the power that we consume is generated here, largely speaking. We do have some interconnection to the UK system, to GB. So we have um, two interconnectors there, but we are not synchronized with the GB system. Um, so it means that we operate to our own frequency and we, we, we produce our own power, but we have the ability to transport power over to the GB system and to receive power. And that's really, really useful in balancing our system as, as we talked about earlier, making sure that demand and supply are um, in, in balance at all times. Right. There are plans to um, develop interconnection with France as well to to link us into um, the European system. And what that will provide, I suppose, back to my, my theme of flexibility, when you think about using increasing amounts of wind on our power system in the future. And as Nola said, like there's been huge, um, huge advances in Ireland. We are, in fact, a world leading power system in terms of using wind and and um, renewable resources. And that's going to increase as we start to harness this, you know, the power generation 
generated from offshore wind as well. So what it means is we need somewhere to send it at times when we have excess and we also need um, that kind of, I suppose, resilience of having that interconnection to be able to balance the system at times when it's a little bit lower. So in the grand scheme of flexibility and, and the tools we need on the power system in, in, in terms of managing weather dependent generation like wind and like solar, things like storage, like batteries that you already spoke about, like demand side flexibility that um, you know we've pointed out that industrial customers can, can uh, offer. Flexibility in terms of um, interconnection is also really important there because we are um, an island system, we're relatively isolated, we need that resilience in order to be able to maintain supplies. And when will we be connected with France? I don't have the dates to hand, so that's in development. Um, our colleagues in the in the transmission system operator in AirGrid are developing that project. Um, I believe the latter half of the decade. Probably, Noel, you might be a little bit more au fait. Yeah, when is that, Noel? I think it's due in 2026 is the, the current date. And there must be a massive cost in bringing this about, is there? Uh, I, I don't have the project cost to hand, but I think it's in the region of around one to two billion euro. Wow. But a lot of that is is being funded through the European Commission. Um, and and do you see that, Noel, as being mm. a game changer then in relation to being able to, uh, as as uh, Siobhan said there, you know, if we've got a, a, a storm for two weeks and we've got all this wind energy that we've built up, that we can just uh, belt it out into Europe? Interconnection is hugely important for yeah. what we're trying to do, both uh, for things like being able to to sell our renewable electricity whenever we have it available, but it's also a, a huge uh, bonus in terms of the security of supply of our electricity. So, um, as was alluded to earlier by Paddy, with, with some of the, the stations, the traditional peat, coal and gas stations closing down in Ireland over the next 10 years, really important that we have a secure supply of electricity that's very flexible as Siobhan mentioned and can be balanced with renewables and interconnection so you can trade power between Ireland and Great Britain and, and Ireland and France and vice versa is going to be crucial to that. Yeah, uh, Paddy we, we've heard in the last number of months about you know close calls in relation to the lights going out um, is that something that in this day and age you know as a as a developed society, you know, that that because of all this change around uh, energy and electricity, that we may, we got to make sure that we don't end up with that scenario. Absolutely. And there needs to be a value placed on resilience and security in the system. And if we look at the real, you know, the macro effects that are uh, that are behind this. So we see that there's an increased gas requirement in Europe at the moment but there's been lower gas production in Norway and Britain due to some technical issues there. Um, and then simultaneously, we're seeing an increase in demand for ga- natural gas in Asia. So we've seen China try to uh, uh, try to move away from, from coal-based uh, power generation, and they've had some issues in even expanding their in expanding their, um, their their coal extraction there as well. So, so now instead, instead of uh, Europe, Europe just competing for some of these gas reserves, there's an increased demand coming from Asia. And as we know, if there's increased, if there's increased demand, uh, prices go up. And uh, so that's really what we're seeing here at the moment. And uh, we've, we've also faced an issue here as well where uh, perhaps an, an, an unexpected consequence of, of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic has been that a lot of power stations in the country were unable to actually get maintenance crews into Ireland to undertake preventative maintenance on the power stations. Amazing. So that meant that they had to uh, run, many of them had to run longer hours than would have been expected for their service cycles. 
uh, those hours had to, been, had to be spared. And now there's a lot of them that would have gotten their maintenance done during the summer period that just unavoidably are getting have to be maintained now. So they're, so they're effectively off the system. And uh, that was exacerbated by the fact that we had two large power station outages as well on technical faults with, with Whitegate and Huntsdown. And thankfully, they're going to come back in. But we are still quite short on the system. And this has, redu- this has resulted in instances where, where we've had to import from, from GB at times where GB is under similar stress. And the price, most people don't know this, but there's a wholesale electricity market in Ireland and the price actually changes every five minutes. Right. And uh, when we would have had to import from GB during these times, the price of electricity in the wholesale market multiplied 50-fold. Yeah. And uh, so... Well, uh, the consumer's seeing that and now. The con- and the consumer, the consumer is absolutely seeing that. And um, so then we've also, in, in the coming winter, I guess, we're uh, continuing to face challenges where there's... Lanina is expected to to arise again. Uh, it's expected to give us a cold winter here, but also it's expected to affect Asia at the same time, which is uh, uh, a, a, a perhaps somewhat of an unusual coincidence. That means that we're both again going to be competing for more natural gas. Um, so this 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 problem of uh, let's call it blackouts or or, or outages. Is not unique to Ireland. It's not unique to Ireland. So we uh, see it in America. You see it in uh, America. China's experiencing it. Yeah. Um, so anybody who has suppliers in China, they're getting emails from their suppliers telling them to effectively order now, so we can try to fulfil your fulfil your orders because we expect to see these outages. Uh, yeah, it's it's affecting a number of wow. markets around the world. Noel, can I go back to you and mm. uh, ask you about again coming back to the consumer? the The end game here is really the electrification of transport and heat in our homes. So if we if 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 we as a society embrace that i.e. that we make sure that all our homes are well insulated mm. that aren't and and then that we buy into the whole thing around electric cars. Mm. So if society did those two things how how much of a difference would it make? It would make a huge difference. Um so so we carried out a piece of analysis with uh, UCC Marai uh, earlier in the year looking at what a, a zero carbon economy would look like by 2050. And out of that piece of work, it looked at the next three decades and the three absolute things that we need to do are one, energy efficiency. So what Siobhan mentioned earlier on, that we we use energy when we need it and only as much as we need. Two, we try to put a plug on everything we can. So you take you take the process of burning something out of it. So you you don't burn petrol or diesel in your car. You don't burn gas or peat in your home. You you put a plug on it. And then the third thing is okay, you, well, de- you, you deploy renewable energy that is cost effective and cheap and that's onshore offshore wind and solar generation so those are the three no regrets things that we can do as a country and after that then you get into choice you get into choice around hydrogen around uh, ccs uh, carbon capture and storage Um, but the three dead cert things that you do is put a plug on everything use less energy and deploy renewable energy siobhan in terms of i suppose the PR angle on what you do, um, you know, the fact that you're dealing with quite a technical and complex scenario. But I think if 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 the man on, and 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 lady on the street knew exactly the benefits of uh, being able to sort of trade power, being able to be selective around power, how can you get that message across to society? 
I think you're right, Bobby. It's a, it's a very powerful thing that will, you know, that will really get us towards our decarbonisation goals. And maybe it's actually very much in tandem with what you've just spoken to Noel about there around um, heat and transport. The more things in our homes, in our communities and in our businesses that are electrified and controllable, the more you can provide that flexibility. So, you know, in terms of um, what you do, being efficient, but also having, having, you know, things that you maybe sign up to be able to make controllable within your home. Um, and don't have to think about very much. So I think we are getting towards that future, certainly as we move towards more electrification around um, greater amounts of electric vehicles and greater amounts of um, heat supplied through electrification and other kind of greener rings as well. But basically, I suppose that the PR angle there would be that there are things that you and I um, in our homes will be able to do in future. Um, we can, of course, now, as you've mentioned, Bobby, we can be efficient in how we use electricity. We can look to where we can retrofit to use efficient appliances. But in the future, we will very much be able to be a kind of an active consumer of, um, of energy. We see that at the moment with the industrial and the commercial um, businesses that have chosen to, to provide demand response and flexibility. They're already actively doing Doing that and that's you know a contribution towards getting towards our decarbonization okay. goals but it's also a means of them kind of managing it and being resilient in their energy supply in their business as well. Paddy if you look down the road say 10 years from now would you would you see Ireland as a place with I suppose a charging point at every parking meter um, would you see uh, windmills in everybody's house like are, are we going to when are we going to see the big change that, you know, you know, that big change that's different to how we how, how we do it now. I think that <clears throat> with some of the most amazing transitions we've seen in society, it's going to be seamless and it should be seamless. So what we do for our customers or our large industrial customers is we automate this process of them participating in the electricity market. For homeowners coming down the line, particularly when you look at the likes of um, the National Network's Local Connections program that ESB Networks are, 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 are launching at the moment, which will uh, effectively uh, put the infrastructure in place to enable smart grid participation. Down the line, you're going to start to see smart grid enabled appliances and devices. Um, so in the same way as... If, what will that look like? So in the same way as <coughs> when you go, if you're buying a dishwasher, I'm sure you'll look and you'll see it's, it's A-rated and you go, this is going to save me money. Well, you're going to look at smart grid enabled and you're going to look at this and go, this is going to make me money. Okay. So what this is going to look like in the future <clears throat> is that um, you will be able to, in the same way as you set your thermostat now to tell it, say, what temperature you want. Very similarly, you will give your, um, you will set uh, the, the, effectively the flexibility parameters for, for these types of devices. So you'll tell your thermostat a range that you're happy for it to operate with. You'll tell your electric car what time you need it to be charged and how much charge you need. And you'll tell your dishwasher when you need it to be finished. And that then gives them the information that they need to actually go and actively participate in the electricity market on your behalf to try to make you try to save you as much money or make you as much money as possible. So you're you're um, so you'll be able to trade your surplus. Absolutely. So your 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 dishwasher may look and it may go. Okay, here's going to be the exact optimal time for me to run. Uh, your heat pump may decide that it needs to actually address a shortage on the system that it can get paid to address. So it's going to shut off now, but it won't let the temperature drop below a certain level. And when you come home in the evening and you have 50% of charge left in your electric car, your car may decide 
decide, well, I don't need to be ready until eight o'clock in the morning. So not only am I going to supply the house, I'm actually going to sell out onto the grid now and make more money than it costs me to actually be charged in the first place. When do you see all this happening? I think over the next decade, we're going to see a massive change in this. And we see in, let's say, for example, in Australia at the moment, um, uh, there's legislation uh, coming into effect there that even if you're if you're not only just installing like rooftop solar, even if you're installing uh, um, a, 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 a pool heater, uh, it has to be both measurable and controllable. And that's the key things. So if it has, if you can measure the amount of power it's using and you control it and you can remotely control it, effectively it can be actually used by, uh, by a company like us um, to participate in the electricity market. Very interesting. Um, Noel, I suppose maybe last word to you. Um, you have a big challenge at, at, at hand. Uh, you've got a big vision for, 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 the, for the sector and for uh, on and offshore wind. Um, uh, do you see the seven to ten uh, offshore uh, facilities um, off the east and south coast of Ireland by 2030 being a reality? We, we can absolutely deliver it. So uh, we're trying to go from 40% electricity to 80% electricity by 2030. So double the ambition there. Um, and to do that, we need to deliver those 7 to 10 offshore wind farms and we need to double the amount of onshore wind energy we have, as well as kickstart and solar energy, demand response, interconnection. <coughs> there's, there's, there's quite a long list of things we need to deliver, but energy infrastructure will get us there. What I think is really important for, for everyone to, to understand is that this is one of the most cost-effective climate measures we can do. This right. will actually deliver us cheaper electricity bills if we wean ourselves off fossil fuels. And the high prices that we're seeing at the moment is because we are we import so much of our energy and we're so reliant on international fossil fuel markets. If we can move to a zero carbon electricity system in Ireland with demand response, with battery storage, with uh, renewable energy, then we can be truly energy independent, control our own prices and deliver a cheaper bill for everybody for the next 10 years. Okay, well look, I want to thank my guest because it's a complex area and I think we've done a reasonably good job here today of explaining it in a way that consumers will understand because it's a fascinating area and I think watch this space because I think um, I'm really, really, not to use the pun, but energised because I think it's, it's, it's just such a complex area and I think to change, to change society, to change behaviour is a, is a massive challenge and I, I absolutely see it happening in this sector. So my thanks to all my guests on the first episode of Project Green. Make sure to subscribe at Newstalk.com or through the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Next time we're going to be looking at the sustainability of agriculture. So look out for that. Take care and thanks for listening. Project Green with Bobby Kerr. With thanks to ESB Networks. National Network Local Connections Programme consultations now open. Get involved. ESBnetworks.ie Air Credit Card, brought to you by Bank of Ireland in partnership with Aer Lingus. Whether you're buying your weekly basics or splurging on a special gift, with Air Credit Card, you'll collect Avios and unlock even more rewards. The only credit card in Ireland that gives you travel rewards as you spend. Sign up now by searching Bank of Ireland Air Credit Card and go from tap to takeoff. Bank of Ireland, begin. Over 18s only. Acceptance criteria, lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. Subject to a monthly fee of €7.99 with annual government stamp duty of €30. Euro. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.